Hello everybody and welcome to Over the Rainbow, an LGBTQ podcast dedicated to queer education and queer representation. I'm your host, Rachel Keithley, and I use she, her pronouns. Today's episode is with the awesome Rocio Sanchez. Rocio uses they, them pronouns. Rocio is a queer digital marketer and brand strategist, helping LGBTQ entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs of colour in fashion take up space. In today's episode, we talk about LGBTQ activism, visibility and representation. Rocio has a lot of experience in this field and they share a wealth of knowledge around what activism is, in particular, activism that exists beyond the streets. Specifically, they share the power of activism and expression through fashion, media and pop culture. Rocio talks about an incredible example of curatorial activism from the Museum of Transology in Brighton, showcasing how important authentic representation and storytelling is and the part that has to play in activist movements. Hopefully after this episode you will have a greater understanding of what activism beyond the streets looks like and can utilise some of these different forms of activism in your own lives. Right, let's get on with the show. For a second year in a row, the LGBTQ community and our allies will miss our pride parades, our festivals, and pretty much every community building event that we've come to rely on. But don't worry fam, we bring you the Pride and Joy Summit. Join us for community, learning, and connection in an affirming and loving virtual space. On day one, We'll bring together queer influencers and business owners from around the world for a day of inspiring the next generation of LGBTQ content creators and change makers. On day two is a day full of support and empowerment for LGBTQ families of all kinds, straight parents and community leaders. For ticket and speaker information, follow the link below in our show notes. Hey, hello, Rocio. How are you? I'm doing well today. Uh, I am actually, I have no idea what to say to that. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's all good. Well is good. (laughs) Yes, yes. I'm doing really, really good today. I'm feeling totally content, ready for the day. (laughs) Amazing. That's what we love. Well, welcome to Over the Rainbow. Thank you for spending your time with us today. Would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? So name, pronouns, a bit about what you do. Sure. So my name is Rocio Sanchez and I go by they, them. I'm also pronoun indifferent, don't really have a preference beyond that. Um, And I am a freelance digital marketer and brand strategist. I work totally remotely. I'm based in Paris, France, and I'm from Queens, New York. Part of my brand is being very open about my personal identities. Uh, I'm a queer digital marketer and I want to help other queer entrepreneurs, freelancers, and uh, minority-owned small businesses in the fashion space specifically. Um, But of course, I do have experience outside of that as well. And, you know, I'm just kind of exploring what I do, what, what I what my strengths are, what my weaknesses are. And it's just been a really uh, fun journey. It's been about a year since I've kind of, I, I graduated from, I finished grad school and I decided to go down this freelance path. So it's been 
a winding road, but I'm happy that I'm here. I did my undergrad in digital marketing at the Fashion Institute of Technology, and I did a lot of uh, projects around, you know, queer businesses, and I did a lot of internship around, uh, around in fashion, and so I have like a lot of experience there, and because of my values, I did a lot of projects around, you know, when I say queer businesses, I do mean like uh, queer-owned businesses or businesses that target queer people, um, so that was really important to me in my undergrad. When I graduated in 2017, I moved to, I, I then went to Paris to do uh, grad studies, and I chose the fashion studies program at Parsons Paris. I finished my thesis last year and I really was, was really intrigued by museology. And, uh, and so I, I, I kind of focused on museology in my thesis and I wrote a lot about queer identity and how that relates to fashion in the museum. And so all of these things kind of uh, culminated to my thesis and, when I graduated last May in 2020, I decided to go freelance and kind of have these values uh, really align with the work that I do. So I've been working for the past year as a freelance brand strategist. And all of that is really like, it really is, uh, it really shows the trajectory of my studies as well. And I'm happy to, to discuss that more later on. Yeah, it sounds amazing. And we'll definitely share more about that later in the episode because sure. it's super important to have that queer representation in all areas. But to start with, let's share something we've done this week, either to engage in queer activism or queer education. What I've been doing this week in queer education more so is just kind of like um, really familiarizing myself with the feminist and queer space in France and Paris specifically, because um, I've recently found that um, because of COVID and even before that, because of grad school, I was very much like my my social circle, just like my my cultural exposure was very much determined by grad school and the research that I was doing, which does have to do with with uh, the LGBT community, but I'll get into that. And um, and COVID. Right. So like I have not I have not gone out of my house in like two weeks except for to do groceries. But um, and something that I feel like I've missed out on is just being a part of like the queer community and feminist community in France and Paris specifically, because it is rather small compared to, you know, uh, where I'm from, like New York, where it's like you can find like 20 different groups, you know, in your in just one borough that you can go to and feel like, you know, accepted in. But and, you know, I'm not saying that that's not the case in France, but rather, you know, there is. Um, it, it's it's really easy to like find uh, thought leaders in the space in in France. So I have uh, like uh, I have looked into this this kind of magazine. <clears throat> it's called a review, kind of called La Déferlante, right? So I mean, there's no there's no visuals in, in the podcast, I assume, but uh, La Déferlante. It's it's a feminist uh, magazine, and it's basically like it just has like a lot of people that are. Um, like just thought leaders in the space in France, but then they also have people who are not French as well. Uh, so they have Céline Siama, who is the director of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, that, that movie that came out like a couple of years ago. And it's really good and it's very gay. And so, you know, just like, you know, it's very, it, first and foremost, it's a very feminist book, 
but uh, I mean, I would assume and I would hope that <laughs> all feminists are inclusive of LGBT people. And yeah, it just has like a, a bunch of different like stories, um, you know, kind of op-eds, uh, kind of new stories about what's going on in the world, but also in France. And it's just, it's, it's, it's in French, but it's just been a good way for me to like get familiar with the space in France, because again, like I've been, I've just been trying to like figure out how do I get involved without actually like getting out and going to a, a space where we just talk about what's going on. Um, and this has been a way for me to like do that. Um, but I feel like I should be doing more, but I feel like this week, this is what I've been like doing, just getting, reading through this, seeing what, what are, what's happening in this world in France. Um, and it's been very, very informative and, and insightful. Yeah, that's a great idea. I love that. And it's really interesting what you said about feeling like you should be doing more, but especially in the pandemic right now, doing anything to further your sort of queer education or queer activism is, is totally valid and is really important. And that's, a really good way to do it so thank you for sharing that yeah of course <laughs> yeah okay so my example um this week I supported my friend Joe's business so he runs a business it's a queer run business called Homo Joe um and they sell clothing and like merch like that yeah it's awesome um so I bought one of his t-shirts and Homo Joe itself is a not-for-profit clothing brand whose aim is to educate about bullying within the LGBTQ plus community um you can actually listen to an episode I did with Joe on this topic a few weeks ago. Uh, but about the business, I just love its ethos and the passion that Joe has to create a more inclusive LGBTQ plus community. And then and talking about the challenges and the double standards that we face in terms of who's queer enough to have a place in the LGBTQ plus community. And I think it's a message that's not necessarily spoken about enough. So I love the fact that he started his business on the ethos of challenging this. And it kind of links really well with today's topic and what we're going to talk about, because it's all about the, pa the power of expression and activism through fashion, which yeah, yeah. is awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. It's giving me ideas about like what, you know, and we're going to talk about like what constitutes activism and, and education. And it's like, I mean, I guess it just depends on what feels right to you, you know, like uh, you don't want to do something that doesn't vibe with you and your values and for me like you know yes reading this book is like it's education but like I always feel like oh there's always something else I could do but uh, I feel like we all kind of struggle with that a little bit I mean just to speak for myself I know that I struggle a lot with just like I could do more I could do this I could actually like go out and and and, and you know cause cause a riot or something I don't know but like I feel like there's always something more I could do because there's so much passion in our community um and you know that's that's a lot of our history is based on that kind of passion for for our you know our rights yeah exactly and this is exactly what we're going to talk about today so nice segue into the fact that we are going to talk about LGBTQ plus activism so what it is, what activism looks like, specifically really in the areas of media, fashion and pop culture, and the importance of having this authentic representative activism. And then finally within that, I know you're gonna share some of the work you are doing uh, in terms of creation and digital marketing and being an activist and how representation and visibility in this sense is so important for you and for your business. So to start with, the big question, what is LGBTQ plus activism? So I would love to start with this with, with my relationship to activism, just so that 
it's clear about where I'm coming from and how I've been shaped by activism. So um, it, I wasn't really involved in in like street activism until like 2014 when Mike Brown was murdered in, in Ferguson um, in, in the US. And I it was like the first time I was, uh, I had just graduated high school uh, it was like, I believe it was the summer when it happened. Um, and if not, if, if that's wrong, you could cut that out. But, you know, when it happened, I was in between the stages of, of high school and going into college. And so I had all that freedom. And I was definitely, it was in November when his murderer got acquitted and there was nothing that, I mean, uh, he didn't get indicted or whatever the legal jargon is, but basically he got off scot-free and it you know caused you know a, a nationwide uh, riot basically and i was uh currently in uh, at that time in my dorms in, at fit uh and i was i'm originally from queens new york so you know before college i was just you know i went to high school and then i came back home or whatever and i hung out with friends but i didn't have that like freedom to just like just go out out of my dorm and five minutes be you know where the in union square where the where the marches are happening so as i was able to like make the decisions on my own to actually like go out and like i didn't have to worry about you know oh you know my parents are gonna let me go out or whatnot and it what it what it allowed me to do is just i just dove right into the deep end right i was so passionate about it i was so angry and i'm still angry about that and so many people are just there's so much anger so much anger about the injustice and what what i went through back then so i was like what around 19 years old or or yeah i believe it was 18 19 and i was going through a lot of my own personal stuff and it was very much like a parallel journey of like seeing what was going on in, in, in the world around me and then going through my own personal uh, issues. And I just crashed and burned by the end of the semester. I actually like dropped out of college. Um, thankfully, like the next semester, I just jumped right back in, but I dropped out of college that semester. I mean, I'm pretty sure I don't remember a lot about what happened that, that semester because it was just like, I was just so in my emotions. And then very quickly after that or, or slowly after that rather i realized that you know um i started to learn about myself and about what i'm capable of doing and something that really resonated with me since that moment whenever i was on the street and 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 uh, you know, marching with people, people would constantly say, you know, the, the people who led these marches or whatever, not, and they, they would have their their speaker phones and they would say you know we're here for the people who who cannot be and they would explicitly say you know first and foremost to the, to the victims of police brutality the people who have been killed who aren't here like first and foremost we're there we're here for them but we're also here for people who are physically and mentally unable to be here who want to be here so you know and that that runs the spectrum of you know being physically unable to 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 be there because of physical disability uh or or mental disability and for me it became clear that like you know that that could include me because yes i could very much go to a uh a, a, a march or whatnot but I know that afterwards it would drain me so much that it would become impossible for me to do my other tasks, my daily tasks. And so it just became really like a, a self, I, I learned about myself. Uh, and, and it was a very hard decision to say like, I, I, I cannot do this sustainably. I cannot just go back to back and back to back to marches. And I have like so much respect for people who do that for 
people who's this is their lives, whether or not they they choose to do so to 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 they choose because some of them don't have a choice. They you know, they're, they're very close to the matter. Um, and some people have that privilege to step back and be like, I'm going to uh, try to find another way to help. So there are some people who donate, you know, they 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 um, they participate in in mutual aid, you know, so like just the everyday person donating to the everyday person. And that is very powerful. I mean, that like I've participated in that. I've had people help me with with struggles, with 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 uh, financial struggles. And it's just been the everyday person like from across the nation or something like that, just donating $10 or something. And it's helped me and my family and I can see how that can help other people as well. So that as well, what that's what I think a lot of people uh, realize as well. It's like, yeah, I can't be on the streets, but I can, you know, donate to bail funds. I could donate to some, uh, you know, my, my, you know, my mutual on Twitter, who is, you know, this trans woman of color who's who's about to get kicked out or something. And, and I could donate 20 bucks to that person and, and whatnot. And so there are art alternatives to street activism that we may not title, you know, activism. And we could we could talk about, you know, what, what activism is and we will. Um, but at the very end of the day, for me, what matters is like, what are you doing? that is actually helping like the material reality of people. Like, like you can tweet all you want, <laughs> say, you know, X, Y, Z, these are my opinions, but uh, is that making any change? Like, are you helping somebody pay their rent and not get evicted? Are you helping somebody like on, are you protecting, you know, uh, you know, people on the streets when, when you see something happen, like when you see something, do you say something, you know? Um, and it's very, very nuanced like that. And that, that is where my, my story comes, you know, in. It, it's just that I had that very, very strong relationship to street activism. And then I had to make that very, uh, very conscious decision to, to say, hey, this is not sustainable for, for me. And on top of that, like I, you know, I was going through college, I graduated college. I, uh, you know, I, I, I got trained in digital marketing and then I went on from there and I said, how, how am I gonna, you know, I'm trained to go into the corporate world, which is not what I'm doing, but that's what I was trained to do. How is it sustainable to do both? Plus there's my mental health aspect to it. So yeah, it's just, it's very nuanced. It's very complicated, but uh, that's my relationship to activism. And that is how I see activism and how LGBT activism or just activism in general, like whether that is just for civil rights and, and, and all of that, how does that, how does that entail not just street activism, but everything else as well? Yeah, I think you made two really important points there. It's the fact that we have this preconceived idea of what activism looks like and activism being this on the street protest march work, which obviously is incredibly important, but then sometimes it sort of gets lost in translation that there are other true forms of activism that are just as meaningful which brings me to the question of what you basically said, which is activism is improving the quality of life of the groups you've made a point to represent. So if you're just, like you said, tweeting and saying, oh yes, I support LGBTQ plus people, but that's it. Well, you haven't taken those actionable steps to 
actually help improve the quality of life of people who are lacking rights. Right. And and like posting a black square, you know, or or putting Black Lives Matter on your profile uh, picture. And it's like, I'm not here to tell you. I'm not here to go into every single person I see on Instagram who I barely know, you know, and be like, oh, you, you posted a, a black square. So you that's that's all that you have possibly done, but it, it, it makes, you know, and a lot of people will say this, I'm not the only person to say this, it makes me just like take, you know, do a little side eye, you know, okay, all right. But like, if, if again, if it, if it was somebody in my life, um, you know, that if I know them a little bit more and I just see that they're posting a black square, but then they might say something, they might say some microaggression the next day, like that, that is when, that's what's important for me to, well, you know, step in there and be like, hey, there's this, there's this dissonance there and, and we need to, to address it. So yeah, absolutely. You know, there, there's more to it than that. And it's, and it's, it's on an individual scale and scale. And it's also on like a, a, a the scale of like just the, the collective. Yeah. It's very nuanced, isn't it? And there's so many sort of layers to it that require a level of engagement and education when you are engaging in this activism, which I think is really, really important to, the success of the activism. Yeah, agreed. Uh, would you like to speak a little bit more about sort of how we engage in activism? Because I think one of the particular points that's often raised is the fact that we need to acknowledge that when we are being activists for minorities, we are not just being activists for, say, the LGBTQ plus community. We will be standing up for the intersectionalities of people's identity. And I think that that is something that's really important to bear in mind from the off when you're engaging in activism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wanna like step back and like go the academic route because, uh, you know, we will be talking about um, my my academic research on queer fashion, queer activism. And uh, a major point of like my, my theoretical framework was Kimberly Cren uh, Crenshaw's uh, scholar Kimberly Crenshaw's word that, that she coined or, or term that she coined intersectionality and it's very interesting to see how the, the term has evolved since she introduced it uh, several decades ago um, because you know she she mentions the way that she coined it was very much of just like this is the experience of of you know the, the nuanced experience of just like the intersections of different things. You could be a woman, you could be a person of color, you could be a black woman, a trans woman, and all these things are going to affect your material reality just like every single day of life is going to be very different for you. Um, and just, you know, the, 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 the trajectory of your life and how, you know, the medical, the, the, the medical space is going to uh, treat you, how, you know, just society is gonna treat you, how the police are going to treat you. Um, and obviously, all of that has has layers to it. Now, the way that I see intersectionality being used now, and I'm not, I, I don't think that I'm in a place to say, you know, whether or not that is an accurate way of, of using it, um, because I, I think that it's just, it shows more just how words evolve. Uh, and the people will say, you know, I'm an intersectional feminist, I'm an intersectional this, I'm an intersectional that. And it, it takes away the, for me, it, it doesn't take away, rather, um, it, it, it shifts the focus on this is me and what I believe rather than this is 
this is for other people and to reflect their experiences, right? And so I just think that that's an interesting thing and I feel like people should be a little bit uh, just just wary of that, right? No, because I'm not here to say, you know, oh, don't say that again. Like, I'm not here to go into everybody's profile and be like a nitpick and that's not me, that's exhausting. That's not, that doesn't help anybody either, but it's rather to introduce this like level of nuance and to say, you know, yes, you know, you, you can have intersectional feminists on your, on your profile, sure, go ahead, but are you really going to think about you know sex workers you know are you going to think about trans people are you going to think about um you know black women are you going to are you going are you actually thinking about that or are you just saying you are and then like in every other aspect you know it's every other aspect for the for the person of color outside of and looking in is going to see right through that you know and if they don't then that is that could be a potentially dangerous situation for them because again this is somebody or this hypothetical somebody who may you know not stand up for them but when when it kind of comes and they have that title in their profile or they say that and they feel like that that you know that uh, that totally like gets them off scot-free. Well, I said that I am this. And so I think that um, that that needs to be taken into account. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure if that answers your question, if that was your question. <laughs> no, it does. And I think it raises an important point for me. And that is that intersectionality goes hand in hand with being aware of your own privilege. So for example, I am marginalized in inverted commas given that I am a gay woman. So there's two sort of intersections of my identity that mean that I am at a disadvantage compared to the white cisgender heterosexual able-bodied man however I am aware that I occupy a space of privilege in that I am a white able-bodied cisgendered woman and it's thinking about your privilege when you're thinking about intersectionality and being aware of the fact that there are aspects of people's of other people's identities which may singularly or combined contribute to them having a greater marginalized experience than you and therefore if you are going to use these phrases such as intersectional feminist being aware of the fact that there are so many different layers of privilege and marginalization that will interact with each other and therefore you have to kind of take on the whole world of marginalization and support it all otherwise it's inauthentic really right exactly and then that's that's something that is a big part of my research you know authenticity um, and you had mentioned it a, a little bit before. It's just like how, you know, what is meaningful activism? Like what is it actually going to help people every single day? Like, are you actually making a change in legislature? Are you actually protecting people when the time is crucial? Um, and it brings me to this, this article that I wanted to talk about, which was another starting point of, of, of there were many starting points, but this is, one main starting point of my research, which is the Time Magazine's article from like 2014, I believe. It is called uh, The Transgender Tipping Point by Katie Steinmetz. And yeah, it was 2014 and it was, um, and it was a very interesting thing that, um, you know, it's, it's an article on Time Magazine, but it actually led me to uh, several academic books um, that talks about visual culture uh, and and uh, specifically transgender representation in media and how, um, excuse me, and how at this point, 
we see more transgender people and at this point, 2014. So that may have changed or has may have, may have increased that 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 representation. But at this point, there has been more transgender people on TV at, than at any other point in in um, in in media's history, I guess. And um, and it doesn't really uh, it, it, take aside whether or not they are good representations or bad representations, because that's a whole other topic uh, that that definitely needs to be uh, acknowledged. But the very fact is that, uh, yes, you could have as many transgender people on TV as, as possible, but violence towards transgender people had, had at that point, and again, I'm sure that it's it, you know uh, the the trend is 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 the same uh, now. But at that point, the, the violence towards transgender people has also been at a all time high. So we talk about you know in the community or you know in, in queer communities, but also communities of color and whatnot. Representation matters, and it absolutely does. But what what is the phenomenon of you know? having so many, uh, not so many, but rather more transgender representation than, than ever and having more violence towards transgender people than ever. And that's where the question, um, the answer that I propose rather, or, or just kind of like um, a reason for that, maybe just because, you know, we it's, it's lip service, you know, like, yes, we have that representation, but what else is happening behind there? Are, 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 are the trans people telling the stories as well? Uh, what's happening to the trans people on the TV? Are they you know, being introduced and then dying at the end of the episode and being brutally murdered? Uh, are, they, are they being humanized? Uh, are they you know, being, uh, you know, uh, are they being depicted as people who deceive and, 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 and deceive other people? Uh, and the stories that are being told and how they're being told and who, who tells the story all of that matters and then on top of that it's you know what's happening outside of all outside of media so what is happening in legislature what is happening you know in pop culture what is happening on social media um and how is all how are people reacting to that and are, are you know are people standing up for 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 those stories and for the people that they represent so it's really very much like there's a disconnect right like you see these two trends yes more re trans reputation re trans representation than ever and more you know violence towards trans people than ever what is going on like there is it's not causation what is the correlation what is there's something in the middle there and um this was a, a starting point for me um the question of like why you know we talk about representation 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 and we could talk about that until our lips fall off but what is you know what, what? What is the disconnect here? Because there is a trend as well of just increased uh, transphobia and tr increased homophobia and just increased hate across the board. Yeah, and I think that's an excellent point. And I think that that is what everyone should bear in mind when they're viewing representation in the media: is is this representation authentic, and is this representation providing a di a direct link to activism? Because if it isn't, like you said, this is why we're seeing high levels of representation, but at the same time, we're seeing high slash increased levels of hate towards minority communities because the representation that's happening is either not authentic or is not getting people to engage in the activism, the, the deeper meaning and the importance behind why it's there, which leads us on nicely to talking about 
activism that manifests beyond the streets and more specifically activism that, ma that manifests in museums and pop culture. And I know that this is something that drove your research and your passions. Activism beyond the streets, of course, as we talked about, can be something like mutual aid funds, you know, just donations, uh, actually <laughs> stepping up for people when the time is crucial. Um, when you see that happening in front of you in, in a close circle of yours, are you going to stand up for those people? And absolutely, I did not even like consider museums to be a part of that activist space until I started researching about it. And at that point, I was... I don't know, for some reason I was like really obsessed with museums. Like I have always loved museums. Like I feel like a lot of people just do, but I'm more more uh, partial towards like science museums. But at that time, my grad program is called fashion studies and I was in Paris and Paris, you know, has a very rich history in fashion. And when you think history, you think maybe museums because museums are play a huge role in historicizing uh, you know, experiences and cultures and all that. And there is, there's a wide, uh, there's a wide range of research on uh, museums and what role they play in, in writing and, and recording stories. And Paris is also very well known for its fashion museums. It has like a, a handful um, and like think the Met, you know, but you know, it's fashion <laughs> collection or, or the FIT museum. Um, and, and there's a lot of that too in Paris. So my, my program really ex exposed me to muse museology and the academic study of, of uh, and research around museums. And I was very much encouraged to study through that lens. Um, and so before that, I had never had, like I did not have any interest or experience like looking at museums in that way but something about um the, the LGBT community which at that point yes I had already like I was you know I, I've been I had been out for five or so years I've been in the community in New York where I'm from for several years so like and I've made even projects several projects in uh my undergrad um I, I had done it around you know queer businesses or whatnot because I did my, my my undergrad in marketing and uh this this allowed me to kind of take okay queerness okay fashion because that's part of the program as well let's use museums as a kind of uh case study right and when I started to do research, you know, there was the transgender tipping point article on, on time. And I said, okay, we're talking about visual culture and museums are absolutely a part of that. Like they, 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 they create culture around, you know, the, the visual aspect of, 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 of society. And I thought that that was very interesting. I found this other book called Trapdoor, Transcultural Production and the Politics of Visibility by uh, Raina Gossett, but it's, it's a collection. It's an, a, a, an anthology of, of several different scholars. And in this book, it talks, it, they, they refer to the transgender tipping point, that article a lot. Um, I think even like in the introduction, then they're just like, let's talk about this phenomenon. You know, that trapdoor of, of seeing so much transgender representation, but what is like, the, there's, a, there's, you know, a, a trap there where, you know, you think that everything's fine, but there, why is there so much more violence? And so people talk about it across the board. They talk about it 
in different aspects with different case studies and a, a lot, yeah, a handful of articles in it or, or papers in it, they uh, talk about uh, museums and archives. And it's just, it's super, it just opened a world for me that I said, wow, like this is amazing. You know, at that point, like because I was studying museology in my own way around fashion, I, you know, I knew the importance of museums in history in history making and history recording. And I said, wow, like this is actually incredibly important for, for the LGBT community. And it became very clear to me that in comparison to other communities, to other, you know, eras or whatnot or cultures, uh, the queer community does not have like that much that much, it doesn't even have like a centralized kind of way of recording or categorizing uh, that kind of history. And any any archives or museums that do are very much community run, right? And so yes, there actually are like many um, community uh, archives because you know museums and archives go hand in hand. Uh, there are a lot of community archives that I tapped into, and basically, you know, all of this research. May, led me to to just see how yes uh, queerness and, and queer people the queer community is in museums and and the question is how do people categorize it right and and, and how how are these museums whether private or public how are they regarding what are they de defining as queer fashion uh, or just uh, queer history and um, that also led me to just activism in museums. So we have obviously queerness in museums, we have uh, fashion in museums, but then what's activism in museums? And there is a very, very rich history of activism in the museums. And I had to like, kind of like <laughs> hover over that because you know there's many different intersections to my research. And up until that point, I, I was not, you know, uh, I was not, an expert in museums. It was more like I was very much drawn to uh, LGBT culture up until that point. Uh, I'm part of the community, so I wouldn't I wouldn't say this feels weird to say I'm an expert in that, but that's something that I feel really comfortable about. Uh, like just there's there's a intuitiveness there uh, just by just by nature of being a part of the community. Fashion, yes, I I, I felt comfortable with that, uh, but museology was something that I had to really kind of like scan everything and then learn as much as I could. So part of that was activism in museums. And there is, again, very, very rich, rich history there of activism, whether that is um, activism uh, towards more representation of women in museums and in artwork and um, more representation of, of uh, non-white, non-Western um, artists and stuff. So all of that, it's like, that's such a rich history. It was very fascinating to learn about that. And then it's also about art as well, art history. That's something that I was very interested in, but again, not, a, not an expert in. So it was very much just like kind of learning, um, scanning that, that history of, of activism museums, art, art activism or art activism around art. And it's just, it was so fascinating to see how uh, queer activism really can fit there and has fit into there. But yeah, so I, I this, all of that research again, led me to another, uh, theorist called and and uh, curator called Maura Riley, and she wrote the book called um, 
she wrote the book called Curatorial Activism. And um, I think she was the one that coined it. And she was basically talking about, you know, um, all this different representation in museums and specifically museums and in artwork specifically. And she has, it, it, the, the book is actually like pretty awesome, easy to read, a lot of visuals on it. Um, and I, I, I loved reading that book because it really, really uh, wrapped my head around, you know, the history of activism in museums and how it's not just, you know, having, uh, you know, um, groups come in and 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 cause a riot and and uh you know uh protest and you know and, and bring bringing signs and absolutely this has been really really uh powerful in in the history of activism in in, in museum spaces but also you know she talks about curators coming in um curators coming in and really upending just kind of the way that uh, the way that museums run things, you know, and that includes having black cre uh, curators come in, women curators, queer curators, and all of that really just spoke to me. And I said, wow, that's super amazing. Like it really just broadened my view of what activism is. And all of that, like all of these different nuances, all these different histories really culminated into my question of just like, what is queer uh, queer identity through fashion in museums? And just, just that doesn't have any any mention of activism, but I feel like activism is present in that question just just by nature of just it being you know queer uh, about queer identity because museums historically have not you know been very open to um, showing those stories unless they are museums or archives archives that have been that are community founded run by the community uh you know or or have been you know uh protested in some way or another so it's very fascinating this microcosm of of museums and and art uh and i just wanted to kind of just like have a question in my in my research that said what is queer identity how does queer identity uh, show itself? How do museums define these things? Because the way that they define these things, do they actually say queer fashion is, or do they not actually define it at all? And it's rather the discourse around, you know, how they display things, how do they write the object labels, all of that really uh, defines how the museum sees, you know, queerness and, and fashion, how it relates to queerness. And, you know, what happens after? You created this exhibition that's temporary what happens after or you you have this institution that from its very inception and its whole its whole thing is you know about queerness so what what goes beyond that yeah and i think at that point is really important because like you said museums and art are used to represent people's stories or people's identities and people's lives and so the question of how you are representing queerness through fashion or through your exhibitions is a really important one because when you are recording the history of let's talk because we're specifically talking about queer people if you're recording the history of queerness and lgbtq plus people how are you doing that because people are going to come and absorb information and learn from you about queerness so are you misrepresenting whose stories are you telling and i think that's a really important question that actually I'd like to ask you 
how representative and authentic is sort of LGBTQ plus activism and representation in museums and pop culture? Um, so to answer that question, I think I could start uh, with a case study of, of what I wrote about in in my thesis. And one of them was the Museum of Transology in Brighton. And it was, it was, it was, it's a traveling exhibition. And as it stands right now, I think that right now it's still not in the, it's moved out of the Brighton Museum. And not that it matters because probably museums are closed over there at this point. But it was curated by a trans man, a trans mask uh, person who just 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 to show you just how they just went for it because this this person the curator uh put his uh his his hospital gown from his uh top surgery um and not just that he put his breast tissue in a jar of formaldehyde uh and displayed it in the the the, the exhibition and that just that that shows you how how really bold this this exhibition went and and you know just so that you understand like they were very serious about this they even you know mentioned you know this might contain some sensitive uh display items please you know proceed with caution they they had that kind of trigger warning at the at the start and i thought that that you know just just from the start that that was just such an amazing um way to to just kind of be bold about it and talk about trans stories including you know a trans mask and experiences uh so the brighton museum uh hosted this this exhibition and the way that i wrote about it in my thesis was very much you know what is the brighton museum what is its uh what is its relationship to the history of the town and it's very much tied to it because it is uh like a public museum but you know, for for those listening who don't know, uh, Brighton is a very uh, historically it is a very queer friendly city, um, and it is it is a resort town in the south of England, and it is a city town, and it is quite relatively small um, city uh, compared to to some others, and very much I, I went there for my research, and it is very much a it is camp like it is a camp city like it is so cute so weird I loved it and it was you know when we went we went we went during um it wasn't high season or anything so there wasn't it was like cold so that's not really when people were going but a very very cool town and city but the museum of transology really uh I believe the, the 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 museum of brighton had already you know in its uh permanent collection downstairs it had like a little tiny section and kiosk for queer history and that goes to show you how the museum made it a point to include queer history into its permanent collection it has po possibly an archive a category for this specific thing and i thought that that was very uh, very telling of the museum itself, right? Uh, and its practices. Then you have the Museum of Transology because that is a traveling exhibition that an outsider, uh, an outsider of the from the institution came in, and 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 totally curated. And what it is is it is a collection of donated items from transgender individuals, from local transgender individuals in the UK, um, and they they donated items that were very 
important for them that you know it could it, it really ran the gamut of just like all the way from you know the first lipstick that you know their 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 sister or close family friend bought for them or the first bra that they bought for themselves or uh they had a whole section a whole vitrine for medication they had you know uh toys from their childhood they had videos of people talking about how they expressed themselves they had a whole section for you know binders um and I just thought that it was like a very powerful exhibition and it was a small space too. It wasn't that, that large, very powerful. And it had to be like over 120 items of just very intimate experiences, items that ex expressed uh, the, the very intimate uh, experiences of these transgender individuals. And the way that fashion fits into it is that again, there is no mention of like, oh, queer fashion, you know, um, although, once you walk in and you move to the to to the left, the very first thing that you see is a commercial for um, a department store. It must have been like Harold's or something, and um, it was, you know, it was it was very much gender expression and Harry Neff, uh, this this uh, trans trans woman and model who's who's pretty pretty well known in the, in the fashion industry was was the star of it, and so I think that that was a way that the curator wanted to say like let's get people's attention because they know that fashion is very you know powerful for getting people's attention visually and I thought that that was very very interesting thing um to see you know visuals uh of, of just outwardly fashion and the fashion industry right there the first thing that you see and then right right across from it was a toilet and it was it was a you know you had the 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 video here on a projector and then right across from it you could see in a vitrine behind that is a, a toilet and it was supposed to represent just kind of like the you know it's it specifically in the UK because there's been a lot of discourse a lot of, of of talk around you know bathrooms and transgender people with bathrooms and that is across the board like such a such a anxiety inducing experience for trans people you know do they go to the one that you know they they um you know if it's a trans woman do they go to the women's bathroom because uh that's what they feel like or do they go to the men's bathroom when they know that they will get a you know that they will might get harassed and assaulted you know and either way that that question is there and so it was immediately like a very uh sobering kind of contrast of like here's you know this this visual aspect, this fashion, it was also a performance piece, uh, commercial for department store, you know, very accepting, very, very open video representation. And then it, right across from it, you see the very, you know, real everyday reality of people. And, and it, it, if you are a trans person coming in, you can know exactly what that association is and you can have that, that emotional reaction to it. And then right next to that, uh, the the toilet and and the sign above it that made it very clear that it was a public kind of it was supposed to represent a public toilet right next to it was a vitrine of um of 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 bathroom items just kind of like you know lipstick uh you know a skincare uh underwear things that you know you might you, part of the everyday kind of uh getting ready all of that and all of this is just to say you know that there was no besides that video there was no mention of just like fashion but it was very much like it's just very much intrinsic in in the trans experience of of, of, of expressing your gender identity um 
you know, through these everyday items. And that is what fashion is. It's not just the in- industry. It is not just, you know, having a really cool fit. It's, it's, it could literally be, you know, how do you express yourself? What, you know, the, the lipstick that you wear, the skincare that you do, the, 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 uh, the bra that you wear, the packer that you might put on, the, all of this stuff, it's really important for the transgender, you know, expression and it, or it may not be, you know, and it's a very individual thing. And that's what I loved about this exhibition. And it was, again, that was just like two, like the three first things that I saw when you walk in. And again, like later on, you'll see the the hospital gown that the curator wore when, when he got his breast, uh, when he got his top surgery and the, his, his breast tissue, you know, all of this stuff. And it's just like, it goes from the actual body to what you put on the body, to what you put inside the body, to what you take out of the body. And it is just like all of these levels there. And I think that that, already shows like very it just already shows that you can tell that it was somebody that was trans that made this exhibition that understood that it's not just the clothes that you wear uh it's it's not just it's not just the bathroom that you go to um it is it is so much more than that and it's from the moment you wake up to the moment that you fall asleep um and another thing that I wanted to talk about that was very very important to this museum, that, this exhibition that I thought that was really amazing was the fact that um, every single item had a handwritten note from its donor um, saying exactly what it meant to them. Or it said something like, you know, it could say something like, you know, uh, wore this to Pride 2017, that was it. Or, you know, my best friend gave me this, you know, oh, I cried wearing this while I came out to my parents. Or my mom gave me this when I came out. It's like, it was just such a beautiful thing because normally, you know, in museums, there's a formula to it, you know, uh, provenance, you know, when it was created, the title of the piece, you know, uh, a little bio of the artist, you know, and, 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 and it's all like engraved on some plaque or something. And it's very, very formulaic and it's very much a museum trying you know following these kinds of procedures and this this exhibition absolutely did not do that it was very much it didn't have names associated to it unless the people wanted to have their names on it um yes there were object labels um actually printed and stuff but a lot of them also had like actual most of them had actual like handwritten notes to them and i thought that that was just very powerful because it just just like very very blatantly went against what is standard in museums and I think very interesting I think that um they were able to do that because it was it's it's a a standalone exhibition and it's also an archive in itself right it's 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 traveling they're they're collecting uh, items and you know they're able to kind of do this and have that freedom to to come in and and have this space and do that but i think that it would be very hard for a museum as an institution to implement this kind of practice right so the exhibition is called the museum of transology so at that point when i went in 2019 i believe uh it it was an exhibition a traveling exhibition but i believe now they are kind of rebranding themselves as like just a museum you know it's 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 a museum that has a collection of of objects representing trans non-binary and intersex people intersex people's lives so i think that the exhibition was very powerful in itself and just just by nature of being 
created by a trans person and, cur and curated by them it, it's so obviously too like you could walk in and just be like wow you could tell that there's so much nuance here um but then within the institution itself of the museum you know which you know has its own history uh brighton itself or just like the the institutional museums across the board about how it's very much like a, a, a cishet white cishet centered uh institution um but we have this museum here that has a history and a very very strong history with with the city that has a very strong history with gay culture and already making it a point to have this little kiosk vitrine for queer history in Brighton on the lower level of the museum, at least at that point when I went, they may have changed things. Um, it goes to show that, you know, they, they definitely were at least more open to having trans stories being told. Um, and I thought that that was very, very powerful. So to answer the question of, you know, activism in museums and whether or not they're effective you know i i can't say you know whether or not this museum actually improves the livelihoods of lgbt people in brighton however this exhibition really showed to me that you know they they're definitely making an effort to at least show their stories and, and not just stories that are you know sad and and fictitious but rather real stories you know and, and and that's important for humanizing because you know another aspect to seeing to to uh increased visibility and representation is that they are fictional people you know fictional people but when you have actual real people um and and representing them like i think that that has another level of power as well yeah, thank you very much for that explanation, because I think it's so important that you look at it as that whole and the intersectional nature of how all of these sort of bodies and power systems that are in play, shall we say, work to create positive representation. And I think that is the point, and that is what the Museum of Transology does. It takes the importance of authentic queer representation or specifically trans representation and says, we need to have positive representation. What's the way to do this? It raises the question of agency. Where are the queer people who are telling the story? They have to be creating the idea, so creating the exhibition, and then they have to be involved in the exhibition. It's not tokenizing it. It is actual trans people's lives sharing their stories. And that goes to show the power of those handwritten tags, that written word to say, this is how I felt, this is me. So there's no room for mis misrepresentation there, which I think is so, so important when we are talking about fashion and expression and the visible nature of queerness. It needs to be authentic so that when people come and access this museum, what they are seeing is the actual accurate representation of queerness rather than someone's misinterpretation or fetishization of what they think queerness looks like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the only I think, um, and I think it's, it's fine, because it like it's a traveling exhibition. Um, I just wish that it would have a permanent place, you know, <laughs> like a, a physical permanent place. But I do like that it is permanent in the fact that that, you know, you go to the website now that didn't exist when I first started my 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 research, but you go to the website now, they, they say we're still collecting, you know, we have over, you know, 
for basically like over 500 artifacts and i think that that's like super super neat and i think that you know i think that eventually at some point i hope that this this um traveling exhibition becomes a more permanent archive a more permanent uh museum space because i think that that would be like a super super neat thing um something that was talked about a lot in trapdoor the book was that there are actually a lot of um digital archives there's a lot of digital archives uh, around queer queerness around queer history around queer fashion even um but there is no permanent place and i think having a permanent physical place it, it would be so so good like uh to have it and and that's part of like what i did you know this is just one ca case study but i you know with 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 the grants provided to me by my grad school i was able to travel to several kind of gay friendly cities that that have that reputation of being gay friendly so i went to san francisco to chicago uh to new york city to brighton to berlin and i visited a lot of museums and archives there to see how do they look at queer fashion so um obviously the museum of transology was i think the most powerful case study for me but in chicago for example there is uh the leather museum the leather archives and museum and that one is very much tied to uh like the uh when you walk in it's very obvious that it's like very much uh focusing first first and foremost on the the gay male experience but they do make it a point to uh to include like people of color uh black folks uh, lesbians you know and there's you know i thought that that was also a really amazing thing but i don't know how much time we have because <laughs> like all these case studies are amazing um but you know that was another example of uh, you know, the Leather Archives and Museum was an example of them not using the word fashion, but rather just creating a whole institution around a, a piece of, of, of textile, you know, <laughs> leather, which is super valid, like super cool, super valid. Uh, people do that all the time. They create a subculture around just a thing uh, that they wear and it becomes a very powerful symbol. And uh, that may be associated with, you know, the motorcycle clubs and 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 gay subculture and and this and that. And I think that there's so much to be said about like queer fashion, and it's literally not just, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race or you know uh, stereotypes around, you know, what do lesbians wear, what do gay men wear, what do they sound like, what's this and that but it's really about like culture. It's really about, you know, the individual. It's really about so much. And it's really like, it's really what, you know, if you're a queer person and you say, this is queer fashion, like that's totally valid. Like this is queer fashion, you know, <laughs> this is my queer fashion, this is my queer style. Um, so I think that th there's a lot to be said about that. Yeah, I know, but I think that's, that's the whole point. Well, two points really that are raised for me within what you've just said there is, just the sheer breadth of individuality and commonalities within LGBTQ plus identity, gender expression, visible representations of queerness. So the fact that it doesn't just encompass like leather for gay men, there are so many different ways that people choose to express their queerness and they're all valid. And I think that that brings in the importance of having these physical spaces such as museums and archives to report that, to show that and to express that. And I think that 
that's that kind of raises the importance of what you said about how the Museum of Transology is currently a traveling museum because that's maybe somewhere that activism now needs to go is allowing the LGBTQ plus community to have a physical space that is permanently theirs to represent what fashion and gender expression and visible representation is to them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I think that there's something to be said about like, like it's there. That's the thing. It's it's all there. Like you go to these cities and you can, if you know what you're looking for, you could all, you could find it. But that's, that's a problem that I don't think is necessarily like the fault of these institutions and these exhibitions and these curators, because, you know, you know, if you want to go to a museum and you want to see something like this, you can find it. Um, for, for example, like, you know, you're on a school trip, all these like, you know, impressionable kids come in and they're going to that lower permanent area space that I told you about. And they're going to see that the queer history there and they're going to be, oh, wow, that's cool. And it's in a museum, so it must be legit, you know, and, you know, the, the Museum of Transology, whether or not it's, it's there or not, like they they miss that opportunity to to see that and to be exposed to that. But because that was my research, I was actively searching for these things and I found them and I know that that they're there you know so museums on one hand um were were very much uh easily accessible but archives you know you may already know like from your research you know you have to request to go in but all of that information is there and it is being um categorized and and cataloged and and collected uh however it's just it's not it's it's not as 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 easy or, or just obvious to like the other day person who may want to see that, and I think that that's that's also important that that accessibility, um, and I just think that by nature of, of the archive being the archive like that, it's understandable because it is very much like a, a you know a standardized practice, and it's not just you can't just like walk in and like be like you know, I'm going to read this. Um, no, it, it, but museums, on the other hand, I think, um, have more responsibility for 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 showing these stories. Um, and, you know, to go back to what you said about, you know, that those permanent physical spaces, I think that what I think that, yes, the Leather Archives Museum is a physical space in uh, the north of Chicago, but it's also not that accessible. It is uh, 18 plus, like you have to be 18 plus because there is also very, uh, very very sexualized environment um because that is the leather like that is very much associated with the leather community all of these museums and archives look at it differently and i think that it's really important to have like a space that uh that is physical so that it's easier to find if people wanted to find it they could find it they don't have to follow it wherever it travels to next uh so i just say i think that it's uh, i think that there's a great opportunity here and it goes hand in hand with those archives that are making it a point to to uh record these histories yeah 100 percent. i think that's a great point i would like to know how you've taken sort of everything you've learned about curatorial activism and the importance of vis visible representation for queerness and how you've sort of invested that and absorbed that into the work you do with your digital marketing. Yeah, absolutely. So I finished, I finished my thesis last year in May and I knew that Afterwards, after graduating, I was very much in, uh, very much encouraged to go ahead and start applying to jobs and stuff. And it became very clear to me that I would be very unhappy in in like the corporate workspace because 
first of all, it wouldn't be sustainable for me. And second of like sustainable at nine to five schedule would just not be sustainable for me. And second of all, I just feel like I need to have to work towards something that is so that, that aligns with my values just period like I you know I could work at a nine-to-five job at this fashion company um and they may say um you know they might post the black square but you know I might it's very easy to 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 feel exploited or to see the exploitation of of you know my black and brown co-workers or queer co-workers and also just me not knowing whether or not the next coworker that I'm going to have or the next boss that I'm going to have is going to be friendly towards me simply because of the way that I look or, or, you know, my identities. And it just became very clear to me that I wanted to just, what the answer to that was, all right, let's go freelance and let's work with people who align with those values and let's work <laughs> because I need to make a living and have that work align with, with my values. So yes, that's why I work. Uh, I, I prioritize LGBT people, queer people, and black and brown business owners in my work because I want to, to feel like I'm contributing to their growth, to their uh, rightful place in, in the, the market. Um, and it was just, it, it, for me, it doesn't feel like activism, but it's more of just like making sure my value, like my, I'm, my values are really directing my professional uh, path. And so there's no really, um, I've kind of moved away from, from museums because like I, I just, that was something that was for me uh, very much uh, important to me while I was in my studies because I was surrounded by me. But then when I graduated, I said, okay, I don't have to continue with museums. I could absolutely just, you know, take everything, the fashion, the queerness, the all of that and put that into my, my work. So that's why I branded myself. I've kind of rebranded myself as this like queer digital marketer, queer brand strategist who helps uh, minority owned businesses in the fashion uh, sphere grow and and take their rightful place in the market. And I think that's absolutely amazing because like I said, it's so, so important to have that representation. So where can people find you if they want to hire you essentially and work with you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So my Instagram, it, my Instagram handle is at marketing by Rocio and my uh, website is also marketingbyrocio.com. And you could also find me on LinkedIn, um, Rocio Sanchez. And if you look in uh, R-O-C-I-O, S-A-N-C-H-E-Z. And if you look for like digital marketer, you'll probably find me there as well. But you could also find all of my, my social links in my link tree, which is also linked in my Instagram and website. Uh, yes, so that, that is where people can find me. Yeah, and I'll make sure to link those to the end of the podcast notes. Um, but to finish off with, I just want, I would be really interested if you could give one tip or actionable step for queer allies and activists. What's one thing that you think they could do going forward? What I want to say to people is an actionable step that you could do is probably just, I feel like a lot of people are doing it already, but take that time for introspection and to understand that, you know, you can say all you want on Twitter or Instagram and put up all the black squares that you want, but understand that, you know, it's, it's, you're not trying to convince, uh, 
you know, the, the people that you, you want to convince that you're an ally, you know, that, that you need to understand that it's going to take a lot more than just that for people to, to uh, feel like, you know, they can trust you and stuff like that. And this goes towards, you know, again, as I said, allies. So um, I think people need to be aware of that and, and, and accept that and just, you know, work towards you know, doing better, not just, just being better, but like just doing better, actually doing the work. So it's much more than just, you know, um, tweeting a couple of things um, and you can get creative with it too. And there's absolutely more that you can do than just those things or just street activism, uh, which is absolutely a powerful tool, but there's so much more you can do in terms of activism and you don't have to feel like, you know, oh, well, I did this, so I've done enough. So there's definitely more. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point to end on, isn't it? Is that activism is a lifetime investment, not a once a week, once a month thing. It's you are actively investing in making sure that every single person is equal. Yes, absolutely. Agreed. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey everyone, this is just a message to say that the weekend of the 22nd to the 23rd of May, the Pride and Joy Foundation are hosting an LGBTQ plus family and influencer summit. Over the two days, there will be an amazing collection of talks from some fabulous guest speakers, including the wonderful Jenna Slaughter, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago. The event is covering a range of topics such as coming out, exploring your gender, dating, family life and finance and much, much more. Tickets are $45, but if you sign up through the link in the show notes, you'll get $10 off. And if you're in the UK, that makes it about £25. So really a great price. I'm really, really excited for this event. So I hope to see you all there. If you have any questions, please feel free to message me. Thank you so much for listening today. New episodes are available every Wednesday. So please do download, share and hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a thing. If you have any questions or feedback, please contact the podcast on social media. We are on Instagram at at underscore over the rainbow podcast, Twitter at over rainbow pod and Facebook at over the rainbow podcast 13. Have a queer week and I'll see you next Wednesday.